0: Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Katie. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, An Anchor for the Soul, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Hebrews. Here's Pastor Nick
1: section tells us is holiness. Holiness. Now, what is holiness? Well, look what it says in verse 14. This is interesting. It says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then look at what it says in verse 16. See to it that no one is unholy. There's that word again, holiness. See to it that no one is unholy like Esau who forfeited his blessing for some momentary pleasure, but there was no way for him to get it back. See, the key issue underlying all other issues in our hearts and in our lives is the issue of holiness. So what's holiness? Holiness be defined as perfection, rightness, the way things are meant to be, the way that we ought to be, the way that, we, the way that things in the world should rightly be and the way that we should rightly be. The fact that God is holy means that God is set apart. He is other. He is different from us. He's not like us. We have flaws. He doesn't. We are imperfect. He is perfect. Think about what this is saying. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see God. No one will see God without this holiness. Without holiness, we cannot, we will not see God. In other words, what God desires from us, what God requires of us, is nothing short of perfection. Nothing short of perfection. Jesus himself said this. Listen to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I've met some people who say, well, I'm not into the Bible. I just really like the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, you like the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore... You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. That's what God requires of us. Now, you might argue with that and say, wait a second. I mean, nobody's perfect. Surely God can't expect us to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. But isn't that indeed what it's saying? That that is, in fact, the standard, that this is the expectation. And if that is the case, and it really seems to be the case, Well, then doesn't that create a gigantic, enormous problem for us? Because as we all agree, none of us are perfect. The Bible, again, uh, agrees with that. It says, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says that there is none who is righteous, no, not one. Somebody out there might argue with it, and they might say this, look, well, that might be what the Bible says, but I don't really care. Because I don't need the Bible to tell me how to live. I can figure that out on my own. I can figure out for myself how I should live and what I should do and what I shouldn't do and what it means to be a decent person. I can figure that out on my own. I can make my own standards or I can go by society's standards. I don't need the Bible to tell me what to do. And, and a lot of people would say, you know what, Here, here's the way I face life. I think that all that matters is just trying your hardest to be a decent person and to treat others with kindness and respect. And if you do that, well, then, you you know, you'll be fine. See, that's how most people in society, our society, approach life. Most people look themselves in the mirror, and this is how they they cope with life. They say, I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty decent person. I may not be perfect, but I've tried my best, and I'm certainly better than a whole lot of other people out there. And so, therefore, you know, I've tried hard to be a good person, and I think, for the most part, I've done a pretty good job. I think that 99% of people in the world would say that. There's like that one guy out there who's like, yeah, actually, I'm just a terrible person. But 99% of people are like, no, you know what? I'm a pretty decent person. I maybe have made some mistakes, but I generally try hard to be a, person, a good person. And I've done a pretty good job. And if God were to call me into account one day, that's what I would say to him. I'm, I'm not perfect. I've made a couple mistakes, but I try to be a decent person and I try to treat other people well. And I think I've done fairly well at it. But let's think about that. Let's analyze that. Let's see if we're, if we're actually accurate in saying that or if anybody is actually accurate in saying that. For example, the golden rule, right? It's kind of universally accepted as the premise of decency. So the golden rule is treat other people the way that you would like to be treated. And the fact is that if you are honest, if I am honest about my life, none of us have ever lived up to that for even one day in our lives to be completely honest. Like, we would all agree that that is a good thing to do, to treat other people the way that you would like to be treated. But if we're honest, we have to admit that we have not put the same effort into understanding other people that we expect that they will put into understanding us. If we're honest, we have to admit that we have not put the same effort into meeting the needs of other people that we expect that people would put into meeting our needs, in other words, even if you say, hey, I think that all that matters is just trying to be a good person and doing your best and being a decent decent guy or girl, the, the fact is that none of us even live up to that. In other words, none of us even live up to our own standards. If we were to set the standards, we still don't live up to them. All of us, even by our own standards, are moral failures. Now, where am I going with this? I'm not, I'm not going on this just to be a downer. I, I, I want to show you something. But here's the deal. God's standard is even higher. What God requires of us is nothing short of perfection. That's what we just read in the Bible. And apart from that, it says none of us will ever see God. And that's a huge problem because, as we all agree, none of us are perfect. In Isaiah 59, we're told that because we aren't perfect and and because we failed, we have fallen short. And therefore, we are separated from God. We are cut off. And that's a big problem. And that brings us to our second point, which is the enduring problem that God is unapproachable, the unapproachable God. Verses 18 through 21, we read about how God is unapproachable. Verse 18 through 24 is actually one section that goes together. And, and what he does in this section is he makes a contrast between two mountains. The one, on the one hand, he talks about Mount Sinai, Although he doesn't name it, but that's what he's talking about. And in the second one, he talks about Mount Zion. In verse 18, he says, you have not come to Mount Sinai. And then in verse 22, he says, instead, you have come to Mount Zion. So what are these two mountains? What do they signify? And what is the writer trying to say? Mount Zion was the mountain on which in the Old Testament, we read that God gave the Israelites, his people, the law, the Ten Commandments and the law, at Mount Sinai after he had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. So Mount Zion on the other hand is a name for Jerusalem. See Jerusalem is a city which is built on top of a mountain and one of the names of Jerusalem is Zion. Mount Zion is Jerusalem was where the temple was located, and Zion was designed to be an earthly representation, an earthly picture of what heaven would be like, the place where God and people would dwell together. But if Mount Zion speaks of being with God and being in the presence of God, Mount Sinai speaks about separation from God. And really, the issue this is bringing up is a very important one. It's this. It's bringing up this question. How can we, who are separated from God, how can we ever come to know God and be with God for now and for eternity? Because that's the issue that we run into here. Without holiness, no one can see God. We're cut off from God. Unless we're perfect, we cannot come in. We cannot be saved. We cannot know God. And one of the greatest illustrations of this is the one he touches on here, that we're cut off and separated from God. It's illustrated by this event that took place on Mount Sinai. And we read about this in Exodus chapter 19. So if you like to cross-reference, you can flip over there. Just write it down. Exodus chapter 19. Here's what's happening in that section. God has brought the people of Israel out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He has set them free, and he's brought them through the Red Sea into the wilderness, and now he's going to lead them to the promised land. And so one day, they're camped at the base of this mountain, this big mountain, and God speaks to Moses, and he tells Moses to tell the people to get ready. Because he says, in three days' time, I'm going to appear to them and I'm going to speak to them and I'm going to tell them my will for their lives. I'm going to speak to the people and tell them my will for their lives. So imagine, you know, try to put yourself in their shoes. How would you feel about that if you knew that in three days' time, God was going to show up and he was going to tell you his will for your life? Well, you'd probably be pretty excited about that. I know I would be. And you'd say, man, if God appeared to me directly and God told me what he wanted me to do, there would just be no doubt in my mind. I would absolutely do it. And in fact, if God showed up to me, I would, I would have no doubt in believing in God and I would absolutely do whatever he told me to do. And that's exactly how these people felt. They were excited. They couldn't wait. It's like, man, this is awesome. God's going to appear to us. He's going to speak to us. This is going to be great. And then God speaks to Moses again like a, a little bit later and he says, okay, here's, here's how I want you to tell the people to get ready for me to come and speak to them. Here's what I want you to do. Tell everybody, wash their clothes, make themselves presentable. And Moses is like, all right, got it. Passes on the message. Everybody's like, cool. We'll make ourselves presentable, put on our good clothes, got it, check. And then he says, okay, but then God tells him, but there's one more thing. There's one more thing I want you to do. I want you to create a perimeter Like draw a line in the sand, maybe put some rocks, create a perimeter around the mountain, in the front of the mountain, and tell the people, if they cross that line, then they will be put to death. And he says, if anybody crosses that line, they will be put to death. And you're like, wait, what? This isn't as fun as I thought it was, right? Like I I thought this was gonna be cool, but now you're talking about like people dying and stuff, and I'm not really excited about that. Put to death? Are you serious? Did I hear you right? Why? It was to communicate something very simple and very important to them. That there are lines, there are boundaries which we cannot cross. And if we cross those lines, then the consequence of crossing the line is death. Because when God appears on the mountain, he comes to them and he gives them his law, beginning with the Ten Commandments. And with those laws and and what they represent are lines, they're boundary markers, they're things that cannot be crossed. And if you cross them, then the consequence of crossing them
0: is death. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. Pastor Nick has written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, facing nine common barriers to embracing Christianity. In this book, Pastor Nick deals directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, whether God condone genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities. Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong, and is there any actual proof that God exists or that the Bible is trustworthy? Pastor Nick addresses these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or has concerns about these topics, and it is a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Christianity, wherever books are sold, or visit nickkatie.org To celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as our gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support B Set Free Radio at besetfreeradio.com. And now, back to today's message.
1: And so what happens is God appears the next day and and he appears to speak to them. And the way he appears is in a firestorm, a firestorm upon the mountain. And there's an earthquake, there's smoke, crashes of thunder, lightning. The earth shakes, rocks are breaking in half. And we read there in Exodus 19 that this is what happened. And the people responded and they were absolutely terrified. They were terrified. And not only were they terrified, but they begged for it to stop. You know, you can imagine being so excited about seeing God appear and hearing God's voice and then it happens and you say, please stop, I can't take this anymore. They were scared, they were intimidated, they were shaken to their core and they were quite sure that they were all going to die. And that's what the writer talks about here in verses 18 through 21. He's recounting this scene. And he says, we have not come to Mount Sinai. We have not come to this mountain, a mountain blazing with fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further words would be spoken. And he says, indeed, it was so terrifying that Moses said, I tremble with fear. See, whereas originally they had been excited to hear from God, now they're terrified. They, they wanted to stop because they realize that there's no way that they can live up to what, what God demands of them. And this terrible realization that, that if they can't live up to what God requires of them, then they, they will be cut off from God and they will die. And, and as they hear God's laws spoken audibly, they come to this terrible realization that they have already actually crossed the line. They've already done it. They've already crossed the line. And let me ask you this. Have you ever lied? Have you ever skipped church to get some work done? You don't have to answer that. Have you ever been dishonest? Have you ever been disrespectful to your parents? If you've ever looked at someone else and what they had and said, I wish that was mine and not theirs. Now that's just, those are just four. That's just four out of 10 commandments. I've done all of those things. I probably did them this last week, you know, not intentionally, but even unintentionally. And my guess is that you probably have too. And what that means is that not only did they cross the line, but it means that I've crossed the line. It means that you've probably crossed the line. And what that means is that we failed to be holy. We failed to meet that standard of perfection. And the consequence is not just that we're cut off from God. The consequence of failing to live up to the standard is actually death, judgment. In other words, we have a debt that we have no means to pay. And this is an enduring problem. All of us have fallen short of this perfect standard, and the wages of that, the Bible says, is death, not just physical death, but eternal death for our souls. My hope was to bring you to the point of despair, and now my hope is to turn the corner and show you our brilliant hope. And that's our third point, our brilliant hope. See, there is good news, and the good news is that there's another mountain, not just Mount Sinai, but there's another mountain other than Mount Sinai, and that mountain is Mount Zion, Check out what it says, verses 22 through 29. He says in verse 22, you have not come, though, to Mount Sinai. Instead, you've come to a different mountain. You have come to Mount Zion. Check out what he says, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. See, there's our hope. See, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, was not only a place where the temple was located, but there was something else that happened on Mount Zion that was was very significant. Just as when God appeared on Mount Sinai, God also appeared another time on Mount Zion. And just as when God appeared on Mount Sinai, there was an earthquake. The earth shook and darkness filled the sky. And there was loud wailing and crying out as people realized they were incapable of meeting God's standards. In the same way on that other mountain, on Mount Zion, Jerusalem, when God appeared, what happened? Well, we read in Matthew 27, That as Jesus hung on the cross, the earth shook. That darkness filled the sky from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. And then what happened? Was there loud wailing and crying? Absolutely. It was Jesus himself crying out, wailing himself. On Mount Zion, it wasn't the people crying out. It was just one man. That man was Jesus And it wasn't just any old man. See, he was God come to us as one of us uh, to live amongst us. And he lived a perfect life. Remember that we talked about that earlier. The key issue, holiness. The life that you and I should have lived, he lived it completely and truly holy, and he, Jesus, he went up that mountain, Mount Zion, on his own accord, and he was arrested, he was beaten, he was crucified, and we read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, that He hung on the cross, darkness covered all the earth for three hours, and Jesus cries out to the Father, crying out, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was complete and utter terror, and then as Jesus breathed his last and he died, we read that the earth shook and rocks were split. Does that sound familiar? Earthquake, darkness, gloom, separation from God, and crying out. What's happening? It's Mount Sinai all over again, except this time it's Jesus who is getting the judgment. Not the judgment that he deserved, but the judgment that we deserve. You see how it worked? We crossed the line, but he paid the price on our behalf. On Mount Zion, God appeared not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment on your behalf. He was shaken to the core. He took the fire. He cried out so that we could enter in through him. So that rather than separation, you could be reconciled to God. You could be brought near. And the question for you today is this. What mountain will you come to? Will you come to Mount Sinai or will you come to Mount Zion? It's actually talked about in a couple places in the Bible. For example, in Galatians, uh, the writer... Does the same thing. He says, will you come to Mount Sinai, the place of the law, or will you come to Mount Zion, the place of the promise? Will you come to God on the basis that you have tried your best to be a pretty good and decent person? Is that what you will say if he calls you into account? Or will you come to God on the basis of Jesus and what he did for you on the cross there on Mount Zion? Our only hope is to come to Zion to come to God on the basis of what Jesus did for you on the cross when he, the only holy one, died on your behalf. That is the way, the only way for you to to experience the Zion, which is to come, the heavenly Jerusalem. That is the only way for your name to be written on the roll call of heaven, the book of life, for you to be counted amongst those who are being saved and being made righteous in Jesus. It's by you coming to Jesus, putting your trust in what he did for you on Mount Zion, on the cross, where he took your place in judgment so that you could come near to God and you could enter in forever. Now just as we conclude. Remember, this letter was written to people whose lives had been shaken to the core by difficulties and hardships to the point where they were thinking about giving up on their faith and giving up on Christianity and Jesus. And the writer is writing to tell them, look, there are two options and only two options. You either come to Mount Sinai or you come to Mount Zion. Either you stand before God based on your own ability, your own efforts to try and meet his standards, or you come to God on the basis of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Those are the two options. If you go away from Jesus, you'll be going back to Mount Sinai. You'll be facing the death penalty for crossing the line. But if instead, if you put your faith in Jesus, who already took that penalty on your behalf, Then not only is that amazing in itself, but check this out. Verses 27 and 28 and verse 29, he says this. All of the things that come into your life, that shake your life, the fiery trials, the hardships that you face, not only will God save your soul, but God will use those things. The fiery trials, the hardships, God will use those things not to judge you, not to destroy you because Jesus was already judged for you, But God will use those fiery trials, he will use those things that shake your life, he will actually use them to accomplish good things and to make you into something great. He will use the fire to burn away the things that don't belong, the things that are holding you back and bogging you down. He will use, he will shake, and it says that he will remove the things which don't belong. In other words, God will take all things and use them for your ultimate good, for his ultimate glory, and and for your greater joy. Because of Jesus, because of what he did for us, because he was shaken to the core, because he took the fire, we can receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, eternal life, salvation, forgiveness, grace, a new identity, a new future, a purpose and a calling of our lives and those are things which nothing and no one can ever take away from us. They are unshakable, unshakable promises which give us an unshakable hope and that unshakable hope can give you an unshakable joy. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. He is the one by whom we can have access to God because Jesus, the Holy One, on the cross, our sins were imputed to him so that his righteousness and his holiness could be imputed to us. That's the great exchange he got the short end of it. We get the lion's share of it. In him, we become righteous and holy before God so that we can actually have the holiness without which no one can ever see God. We, we can live out that life that new life as a person who has been made right with God. See, when you've received that kind of grace, it sets you free to show grace to others. It sets you free to let go of your bitterness and resentment towards others and forgive them as God has forgiven you. You can live at peace with other people. You can show them grace because God has shown grace to you because now you have peace with God. And it will change, absolutely, it will change the way that you relate to your spouse, the way that you relate to your boss, your coworkers, everyone in your life. It makes you a completely new person and gives you a new life. Furthermore, if you make Jesus and what he did for you, if you make that the source of your greatest hope, the source of your greatest joy, then there is nothing in life or in death that can ever take that away from you. In fact, anything in life and death can only bring you closer to it if he is the source of your greatest hope and greatest joy. The hardships and difficulties of this life will only serve to bring you closer to it. They will only remove from your life those things which didn't need to be there anyway. And what that means for you is greater hope and greater joy. And there are two ways that this text tells us to respond to this overwhelmingly good news. Number one, he says we are to make sure that we do not miss out on receiving the grace of God. And number two, it says we are to offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Verse 15 says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Verse 25 says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking to you. So in other words, that means for you and I today, if God is speaking to us and he's inviting us today to receive his grace and to receive his forgiveness and his salvation, the way that you do that is by putting your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and in what he did for you on the cross. And so I want to encourage you with the words of this text may none of us fail to obtain the grace of God. May none of us close our ears to his voice speaking to us today, but may we respond. And secondly, as we receive his grace, may we respond by giving him acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And that's what we're going to do now as we close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace to us. We thank you for your love for us. Lord, we thank you that on Mount Zion, Lord, you took the price for what we deserve because of what happened on Mount Sinai. Lord, thank you that although we were the ones who crossed the line, you were the ones, you were the one who took the the judgment for us so that we might have life in you. And Lord, I thank you for that, that this great exchange that you took our sins from us and you gave us your righteousness and your holiness. Lord, we thank you for that, and and we receive that today, and we say, thank you, Lord. May we live, may we walk in that new holiness, Lord. May you deal with the root issue of our hearts, Lord, so that we're not just plucking off the top of the weeds, but Lord, so that we might truly be cleansed and renewed and new people in you, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.